Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. The story of football in England and Wales between 1969 and 1975 is actually two stories of wildly different tones running concurrently. At the start of 1969, English football held the World Cup, the European Cup and the Intercities Fairs Cup. While the Football League saw close title races and high drama though, there was also a sense that the game was entering into a period of decline and that this would take a considerable amount of time to come to an end. This is a story of how football in this country failed to build upon its successes of the mid to late 1960s and of how the game itself failed to heed the warnings that it was headed in this direction. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1969 and 1975. It only took six years for any sense of optimism to wither on the vine. At the end of 1968, England seemed to have found a way to embrace footballing modernity. But the game at the end of the 1960s was only partway for a revolution in technical sophistication, and the national team didn't have the wherewithal to stay near the top, whilst the European Cup holders would also embark on a substantial decline of their own. If Manchester United's 1968 European Cup win represented the closing of one terrible chapter in the history of the club, few Old Trafford seemed to know what the next chapter would look like. Matt Busby had turned 59 years old three days before the final, but he didn't retire afterwards. Instead, Busby hung on at Old Trafford until the end of the following season, announcing his intention to retire in January 1969. To say that his succession was bungled, however, would be something of an understatement. The club decided that their new manager should be Wilf McGuinness. McGuinness had been one of the Busby Babe squad players, but he hadn't made the fateful journey to Belgrade in 1958 because of injury. After his career ended prematurely, McGuinness became United's reserve team manager, but he was still just 31 years old at the time of his appointment, and to add further layers of complication to the matter of the authority that he might have held within the club, not only was he managing an ageing team featuring several players older than himself, but Busby's retirement had proved not to be that much of a retirement at all either. 
instead of leaving the club altogether or taking some form of ceremonial position, Busby had become Manchester United's general manager, even keeping his previous office while McGuinness had to take another smaller office just up the corridor. Unsurprisingly, McGuinness's time as manager of Manchester United was not a success, and his time in this position ended at the very end of 1970, when he was sacked after his team played out a 4-4 draw away to Derby County. Busby stepped in again, this time as caretaker manager, until the end of the season. The new permanent manager appointed in the summer of 1970 was the quietly spoken Irishman Franco Farrell, who was brought in from the newly promoted second division champions Leicester City. But O'Farrell himself fared little better than his predecessor. He did at least manage to get the manager's office to himself. But with Leeds United still dominant, but plenty of other competition from Arsenal, Derby County, Manchester City, Liverpool and others as well, Manchester United seems sluggish by comparison. George Best had to be sacked again by the club in the autumn of 1972. And when they lost 5-0 at Crystal Palace in December of that year, Tommy Doherty replaced O'Farrell and began another project to try and rebuild the team. Dennis Law left for Manchester City and Bobby Charlton retired at the end of the 1972-73 season. But with new signing striker Ted McDougall failing to find the required form in front of goal, Manchester United struggled again throughout the 1973-74 season and were relegated on the last Saturday after failing to beat Manchester City at Old Trafford a match probably best remembered now for Dennis Law's back heel, which gave City the lead with 10 minutes to play. Six years after becoming the champions of Europe for the first time in their history, Manchester United would be playing second division football for the 1974-75 season. Morgan. Doyle. Somerby slotting it through nicely for Bell. Stewart is away on the left. Lee. Pulled across for Law! Dennis has done it! And no elation there at all from Dennis Law. Plenty of time to look at the goal again. Somerby in possession. Played forward for Bell, a nice pass. Bell looks up, goes for the edge of the area. Now Lee. And as Lee goes right, Law is waiting. And just that calculated little back heel. And Dennis is going to come off. Farewell to Old Trafford. If the last day of the 1973-74 season had been a depressing one for Manchester United then this was at least in part because of the crowd violence that was witnessed that day at Old Trafford. Hundreds of supporters invaded the pitch with the presumed intention of getting the match abandoned, and the media reaction to it all will be familiar to modern ears. The Daily Mirror's Frank McGee, for example, wrote in the strongest terms possible about the hooligans, maintaining that they are a cancer that needs cutting out and advocating that the entire Stratford end be closed off for the entirety of the following season. The strength of the reaction in the press wasn't that surprising. After all, 
this wasn't the only time that something like this had even happened that month. Three weeks before the Old Trafford pitch invasion, Newcastle United supporters had invaded the pitch with their team 3-1 down at home to Nottingham Forest in an FA Cup semi-final. The referee took the players from the pitch for eight minutes, but when they came back out, Newcastle came back to win the game by four goals to three. The FA ordered a rematch at a neutral venue, which Newcastle won after a replay. So the key message sent out from all of this may well have been that invading the pitch pays if all else has failed. Fences started going up around grounds in the summer of 1974 after Spurs supporters rioted in Rotterdam during their UEFA Cup final against Feyenoord. And by the end of the season, there was considerable talk of what to do about this growing problem. Football hooliganism, however, had been with us since large crowds started attending matches. The first recorded instance in the modern game occurred during the 1880s in England, a period during when gangs of supporters would intimidate neighbourhoods, in addition to attacking referees, opposing supporters and players. In 1885, after Preston North End beat Aston Villa 5-0 in a friendly match, Both teams were pelted with stones, attacked with sticks, punched, kicked and spat at. One Preston player was beaten so severely that he lost consciousness and press reports at the time described the fans as howling roughs. The following year, Preston fans fought Queen's Park fans in a railway station. The first recorded instance of football hooliganism outside of a match. In 1905, A number of Preston fans were tried for hooliganism, including a drunken, disorderly 70-year-old woman, following their match against Blackburn Rovers. Although instances of football crowd violence and disorder have been a feature of association football throughout its history, the phenomenon only started to gain the media's attention in the late 1950s. By the 1960s, an average of 25 hooligan incidents were being reported each year in England. The label football hooliganism first began to appear in the media in the mid-1960s, leading to increased media interest in, and reporting of, acts of disorder. It has been argued that this in turn created a moral panic, out of proportion with the scale of the actual problem, and that this publicity in time only exacerbated the problem. Certainly, the erection of fences didn't seem to make any difference towards eradicating this escalating violence as a problem for the game. Indeed, it has been argued that eradicating trouble was never really the point of the fences in the first place. The pitch invasions that took place at St James's Park and Old Trafford in April 1974 had been a particular embarrassment for the authorities because they occurred in front of the television cameras. If we accept that increasing trouble at matches had, by 1974, been a feature of the game in this country for more than a decade, we might reasonably presume that the principal role of the fences was to keep trouble off the pitch, out of sight and out of minds. Containment became the policy that would dominate the next decade and a half of the way in which football supporters were treated at matches. Fences didn't just go up to surround pitches. They also segregated home and away supporters. At the start of the following season, though, 
a 17-year-old Blackpool supporter, Kevin Olsen, was stabbed to death on the terrace behind the goal at Bloomfield Road during a match between Blackpool and Bolton Wanderers. And there were further serious outbreaks at big matches throughout the remainder of the 1974-75 season. The uh, far side of the ground, a fight now out on the pitch itself as a spectator is dashed out there and now here come the fans. This is what they wanted to do all the time. Newcastle fans rioting out onto the pitch, a terribly dangerous moment for the players themselves now. As they charge down the field, these Newcastle supporters to where the Forest supporters are behind the other goal. And we're going to have trouble all the way around this ground. And referee Q has pointed to the dressing room. He's not having the players involved in any problems out here. Indeed, referee Mr Q acted positively there. His first thought was for the safety of the players, and that's quite right. You can see they were hardly young hooligans either. But ten minutes later, it was safe enough for the game to be restarted. There was also considerable reason to be concerned about the safety of grounds after the Ibrox Stadium disaster of 1971. On Saturday the 2nd of January of that year, 66 people were killed in a crush as supporters tried to leave Ibrox Stadium in Glasgow. The match was between Rangers and Celtic and it was attended by more than 80,000 supporters. In the 90th minute, Celtic took a 1-0 lead through Jimmy Johnston and some Rangers supporters started to leave the stadium. However, in the final moments of the match, Colin Steen scored an equaliser for Rangers. As thousands of spectators were leaving the ground by stairway 13, someone may have fallen, causing a massive chain reaction pile-up of people. Most of the deaths were caused by compressive asphyxia, with bodies being stacked up to six feet deep in the area. More than 200 other people were injured. Initially there was speculation that some fans left the ground slightly early when Celtic scored, but then turned back when they heard the crowd cheering when Steen scored the equaliser, colliding with fans leaving the ground when the match ended. The official inquiry into the disaster, however, indicated that there was no truth in this hypothesis as all the spectators were heading in the same direction at the time of the collapse. The long-term legacy of the Ibrox Stadium disaster was the Safety of Sports Ground Act 1975, which finally created a legal framework to supposedly keep football stadiums safe. The law required safety certificates to be mandatory for all grounds with a capacity of 10,000 or more. Safety certificates were to be determined by the Green Guide, the guide, more formally known under its official name of the Guide to Safety at Sports Grounds, is still used to this day, albeit after many amendments. From the stunned city of Glasgow, pictures of the aftermath of Britain's worst ever soccer disaster. 66 spectators, many of them children, lost their lives when these safety barriers gave way. An equalising goal in the last seconds of the game between Celtic and Rangers caused the crowding which led to the tragedy. 165 survivors are in hospital. The official inquiry could lead to much tighter safety regulations at all Britain's football grounds. Soccer fever has often brought disaster close. Safety barriers gave way during this Burnley-Sheffield match in 1962. 
games between the two big Scottish teams, Celtic and Rangers, aroused passionate loyalty and emotion. Many spectators were injured when the two giants met in the 1969 Scottish Cup final. The England national team started its campaign for the 1972 European Championship with a degree of comfort, dropping only one point from their six matches against Switzerland, Greece and Malta. The all-important win came by three goals to two against Switzerland played in Basel in November 1971, a match which featured three goals in the opening 12 minutes and was won for England by an own goal with 13 minutes to play. Wales, meanwhile, were unable to qualify from a group that also contained Romania, Czechoslovakia and Finland. England's qualification set up a playoff, effectively a two-legged quarter-final, in April and May of 1972, before the final four played off against each other in Belgium in the summer. England drew West Germany. The first leg was played at Wembley on the 30th of April 1972. In the Observer the following morning, Hugh McIlvanny wrote, No Englishman can ever warm himself with the old assumption that, on the football field if nowhere else, the Germans are an inferior race. Last night at Wembley, a West German football team playing with grace and spirit and an absolute commitment to attack administered the most thorough defeat ever inflicted on Sir Alf Ramsey's England on their own ground. This, the first victory any German side has ever won over England in this country, was undeniably deserved. Despite the significance of the West Germany matches, England went into them having not played for almost five months. Roy McFarland was withdrawn due to injury, but then featured for Derby County in their vital league match against Liverpool 48 hours later, all of which resulted in Ramsey openly criticising the Derby manager Brian Clough. And on that sodden Wembley pitch that night, England looked outdated and stodgy against a brisk and stylish West German team. The central defensive partnership of Bobby Moore and Norman Hunter wasn't working, and the midfield was outplayed. French football magazine L'Equipe described West Germany as dream football from the year 2000. Despite the fact that England had levelled the game at 1-1 with 12 minutes to play, they were still outplayed on the evening. It's a result that remains a favourite of German fans. If there had been any doubt over whether the best team won when they played in Mexico in 1970, There wasn't after Wembley in 1972, and it would be a long time before England would be better than Germany again. The two sides drew the second leg in Berlin 0-0, and Germany would go on to win the tournament, sweeping aside the Soviet Union in the final in Brussels. Qualification for the 1974 World Cup finals in West Germany saw England and Wales drawn against each other in a group of three with Poland. England and Wales played their two matches against each other first. England won the first match by a goal to nil, but the complexion of the group was given a somewhat more opaque slant when the two teams drew one all at Wembley, before Wales beat Poland 2-0 to go top of the group. They're getting on now for three minutes of injury time and that is enough. And listen to this. A famous night for Welsh football, 
And Bobby Moore and the England team left to reflect on a lack of it, on a lot of attack, but still a lack of goals. England's trip to Poland then was not a match that they could afford to lose, but they did. In Chortsov on the 6th of June 1973, they were beaten by Poland by two goals to nil. Bobby Moore, who'd also made a mistake which led to a goal during the West Germany match the previous year, was culpable for both Polish goals. First he swung at and missed a free kick, which allowed Robert Gadokcza to give Poland the lead. Then he was caught in possession by Vladimir Lubanski, who went on to put the match beyond England. To make matters worse, Alan Ball was sent off for fighting. When Poland beat Wales by three goals to nil in their next match, the scale of England's defeat in Chortsov became clear. If they could win their final qualifier against Poland, they'd be through. If they failed to win, though, they'd be out. A familiar arrogance pervaded pre-match coverage. When Brian Clough famously labelled the Polish goalkeeper Jan Tomaszewski a clown before the match on the television, he was merely reflecting the opinion of many. Not for the first time, though, English pride became before an English fool. Tomaszewski's goal was under siege for almost the entire 90 minutes, but outstanding and occasionally quite unorthodox goalkeeping kept Poland in the game. When they did get a break, 12 minutes into the second half, Jan Damaski's shot squeezed tamely under the England goalkeeper Peter Shorten and in. Six minutes later, Tomaszewski's goal was finally breached with an Alan Clark penalty, and the siege began again, but England couldn't find a way past the Polish goalkeeper. He was lucky at times, inspired at others, but ultimately he did enough, and that's what really counts. The win in Chortsov had been Poland's first against England and it remains their only win against them after 18 attempts to this day. The next morning, the Sun newspaper described the elimination as the end of the world. Alf Ramsey, who'd never fully trusted or sometimes seemed to understand substitutions, was heavily criticised for waiting until the 85th minute before bringing on forward Kevin Hector. Ramsey's position had become untenable, but he didn't resign. That came about the following May, as a result of the intervention of Sir Harold Thompson, the chairman of the FA. Considering England's recent failures, Ramsey's dismissal may have been justified, but the newspapers reported that the whole episode was handled with brutal insensitivity, whilst journalist and author Leo McKinstry wrote that England's most successful manager would have had a legacy fit for a hero had it not been for the malevolence of FA chief Harold Thompson. Joe Mercer took the job on a caretaker basis until a permanent replacement could be found. Lato screaming down the right side. Left, left side rather. Now it's Lato against McFarlane and the Dockers over there. The shot is on for Damaski. Oh, it's scored! Here it is again, Lato doing the breakout as they caught England all the way forward. And Domaski coming in now, the challenge of Hughes not quite enough, and it's in the back of the net. 
Winning the FA Cup in 1970 and the European Cup Winners' Cup the following year, it felt as though Chelsea could have a chance of winning the league title in England as well. But it never quite happened, and a sense of decline started to fall over Stamford Bridge with the construction of a vast new East Stand there in 1972. It wasn't that Stamford Bridge didn't need the redevelopment. Apart from an uninspiring prefab stand built a decade earlier, it had hardly changed since the 1930s and was starting to distinctly show its age. The new stand was due to be part of a redevelopment for the whole of the stadium, which would have made it by some distance the most modern in Britain. The timing, however, was all wrong. The oil crisis of 1973 struck just as the club was due to start building work, and costs suddenly started to escalate out of control. When the country went on to a three-day week in order to try to conserve energy, those costs ended... Those costs only escalated further. Ongoing strike action within the construction industry didn't help either, and all of these complications only stretched out both the cost of the new stand and the time it took to build. When Chelsea did unravel, they did so extremely rapidly. At the end of the 1969-70 season, the club had finished in third place in the first division and won the FA Cup. Two years later they finished in 7th place in the table and were beaten in the League Cup final by Stoke City. Two years on from this, they finished in 17th place in the table. They were relegated at the end of the 1974-75 season. Inside, it's an embodiment of all the things people got excited about in the 60s when the building was conceived. About streets, walkways and channels of communication. All the ordinary city functions. In the 60s, they'd have called this a, a concourse, a very 60s word. And it actually manages to be more like a street than most shopping centres. The architects must have been inspired by a mass of people passing through the veins of the buildings. Then to be fed into the main stands above and below. Dom Reavy was never an obvious candidate to be a one-club manager. As a player, he had played for five different clubs, a high number for the time, each transfer bringing him more money. He'd earned himself a reputation for this as a player, and as a manager he was subject to repeated offers. In the summer of 1972, though, one almost came to something when Everton offered him a lot of money to replace Harry Catterick, who'd suffered a heart attack. Rumours grew throughout the 1972-73 season, culminating in intense press speculation at the time of their European Cup Winners' Cup final against Milan in Greece. They lost the match by a goal to nil. The following season, of course, Leeds strolled to the league title, setting a record of 29 matches unbeaten from the start of the season. But the 1973-74 First Division title was to prove to be the last hurrah for Don Reeve's leads. His move to Everton fell through at the same time that a new law limiting the pay rises that people could legally receive came into effect. But another, bigger job was on the horizon. Alf Ramsey was finally fired as the England manager on the 1st of May 1974, and the matter was, it is understood, extremely badly handled by the FA. 
quite aside from any other considerations, it was astonishingly bad timing. England may have failed to qualify for the 1974 World Cup finals, but they had kept Ramsey on after the World Cup qualifiers for a 1-0 home defeat by Italy and a 0-0 draw with Portugal in Lisbon, but the FA instead sacked him 10 days before the start of that year's home internationals, with the team having four friendlies scheduled for afterwards as well. Joe Mercer took charge for just 36 days. In that time, he shared the home internationals title and then won one and drew three of their friendly matches. It was half expected that Mercer would be offered the job on a more permanent basis, even if only as a transition to a younger manager. After all, he was very popular, very knowledgeable and could be considered a highly appropriate figure to heal the hurt caused by the failure to qualify for the 1974 World Cup finals. After Revy expressed his interest in the job though, the FA's heads were turned, and on the 4th of July 1974, Dom Revy was appointed the New England manager. I said that they were the most professional outfit in the business, and I said that in about 64, 65. And that word, they didn't take the word right, because professionalism meant that they wanted to train hard, they wanted to live right, they wanted to improve themselves, they wanted to be the best side in the world. And everybody didn't realise all the things well, the word professional covers. And everybody thought that meant, that word, it was hard, they would kick people, and they would brush people to one side just for sheer power, and nobody gave them the credit um, for the tremendous... Reeves' replacement at Leeds, though, couldn't have been more surprising. Brian Clough. The anti-Reevy. It had been half assumed that the veteran Leeds player Johnny Giles would be eased into the management position following Reevy's departure, but it only took the Leeds board two weeks to make their decision. Clough, of course, immediately put the players' noses out of joint. During one of the first training sessions he took at Leeds, he reportedly told the players that you can throw your medals in the bin because they were not won fairly. His first game in charge of his new club was the Charity Shield against FA Cup winners Liverpool at Wembley, but not before he had called Reevy to ask if he would like to lead the team out as it was his side that had clinched the title three months earlier, an offer which Reevy politely declined. Bill Shankly would, of course, be doing the same for Liverpool ahead of his retirement. It was a match now best remembered for the fight between Kevin Keegan and Billy Bremner, which led to both players being sent off. Liverpool won after a penalty shootout. It was more or less as good as things got for Brian Clough and Leeds United. Clough left Ellen Road after just 44 days in charge, having won just one match in the league and with the defending champions in 19th place in the table. It simply hadn't worked and all tides were probably at fault to some extent. It's not difficult to see that Clough was partly to blame, and some have wondered whether his failures without Peter Taylor as his assistant, along with Taylor's own managerial failures, are a sign that the genius laid between them, rather than in any one of them in particular. On the evening of his dismissal, Clough discussed his short time at Ellen Road with Yorkshire Television's local news show Calendar, the programme also brought Reevy into the studio where, in a live broadcast, the two ex-managers spent as much time debating management practice with each other as was with the host Austin Mitchell. It made for spellbinding television. Well, I think that um, 
truthfully, um, Brian is a fool of himself. I must be very, very honest here. I honestly feel that he's criticised Matt Busby, Bertie Mee, me personally, Norman Hunter, Peter Lorimer, Billy Bramner, Peter Story. He's criticised so many people in the game whose records stand to be, to be, to be seen. He's criticised so many people. This is his style. If he wants to be that style, fair enough. But I think that is totally, totally wrong for the game of professional football. He says about honesty and things like this. But when you talk about honesty, if honesty is going to destroy the game, then you're in all kinds of trouble. I think ah. you're doing the game. I think you're doing the game a great disservice. Yes, I would. In other words, the accusation is that you're trying to shoot your mouth off. About so now when you talk about... I would let agree me completely. Let me answer his question about, first. No, let me answer his question first. He talked about, he talked about winning the championships better or, or differently. Our record is there to be seen for 11 years. Yes. Right? The first four or five years, I've always said this, we played for results. The last four or five years, we've been the most entertaining side by crowd entertainment and topping charts with national newspapers and television. Also, Don, the disciplinary chart. The disciplinary chart. You topped that. We topped that once. Well, you topped it for the last two or three years. No, 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 that's not, that's not true. Um, it wasn't 100% right, I will agree. Sorry. It wasn't 100% right, discipline on yeah. the field, and last year we straightened it out. Brian Clough was appointed the manager of Nottingham Forest in January 1975. His total payoff from Leeds United had been £98,000. Leeds, however, had to carry on, and their decision on who to replace him was the former England captain and Bolton Wanderers manager Jimmy Armfield. Armfield had limited success in the league. The team's start to the season might have been a blip, but their final league position of ninth in the first division could only be considered a partial recovery, being as it was by some distance the lowest league position since getting promoted into the first division 11 years earlier. The European Cup, however, was a different matter. Leeds sailed to the semi-finals of the competition, scoring 14 goals and conceding just four from two-legged matches against FC Zurich, Epes Doza, and Anderlecht. In the semi-finals, though, they faced a considerably greater challenge of a Barcelona team under the managership of legendary Rhinus Michaels, who coached the Netherlands team to the World Cup final the year before. It was a team that featured both Johan Cruyff and Johan Naiskens. Leeds won the first leg by two goals to one at Ellen Road, and in front of a crowd of 110,000 people, took a seventh-minute lead in the second leg through Peter Lorimer. Barcelona came back and levelled in the second half, but Leeds hung on to set up a final with Bayern Munich in Paris. That particular evening in Paris, in May 1975, turned out to be the coda for Don Reeve's Leeds. They had two stonewall penalty shouts turned away with the score still goalless, and were eventually beaten by late goals from Franz Roth and Gert Muller. Leeds supporters reacted by throwing seats onto the Parc de Prince pitch, and the violence in Paris continued after the match. It wasn't that there hadn't been hooliganism in European matches before. Just a year earlier, Spurs supporters had carried on in a similar fashion during their UEFA Cup final away leg against Feyenoord. UEFA, however, needed to send out a message about what was clearly a growing problem within the English game. Leeds were banned from all European competition for four years, 
though this would later be reduced to two upon appeal. Considering the decline into which the club fell throughout the late 1970s and early 80s though, this punishment would never effectively be served. Some, perhaps many, Leeds supporters though, still believe that they were systematically cheated out of winning that 1975 European Cup final. Brilliant play again by Clark, and is that a penalty? No! Well, Beckenbauer doesn't like that situation. It looked a definite penalty to me. Clark was thrown. He's watched Beckenbauer pull the right legs from underneath Clark. Giles, Maitley, who hasn't been picked up, coming from the back. It was Derby County who, under the managership of Dave Mackay, won the 1975 Football League First Division Championship by two points from a chasing pack which included Liverpool, Ipswich Town and Everton. The following season, however, would see the beginning of a shift in the power dynamic of English club football that would stay in place for the next decade and a half. The house that Shankly built, it turned out, would have more stable foundations than that which Reavy had built at Elland Road. By the middle of the 1970s, January 1969 felt like a very long time ago. Busby and Shankly had retired. Manchester United were in the second division, while Leeds United were sliding into decline, with the man who'd built that club having just taken over as the manager of an England team that had spent the previous five years sliding inexorably towards mediocrity. English football clubs would recover on the European stage over the next five years, but at home, the state of decline could no longer be denied. Each other and grow hearts.